Welcome, I'm Jill Rutter. I am Programme Director at the Institute for Government covering all things Brexit. Uh, but we realise that we've taken a slight sort of narrow view of Brexit and focus a lot on things like what would it mean for the UK's future trading relationship with the EU, some of the stuff on, uh, on institutional frameworks. But we hadn't explored some of the uh, interesting aspects about the way in which the UK would continu continue to interact with the EU on foreign security and development issues. So a month ago, some of you might have seen we had Simon MacDonald, the Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office, come here and talk about foreign policy after Brexit in quite an interesting and frank uh, discussion. Uh, today, we're delighted to have the Permanent Secretary at the Department for International Development, Matthew Rycroft, uh, come and join us to talk about aid and development after Brexit. What are the new opportunities? What are the potential challenges? So Matthew's been Permanent Secretary at the Department for International Development since January. I thought it was only March or April, but anyway, time flies. Um, before that, many of you will have seen him in action as our Permanent Secretary, at, uh, Permanent Representative at the UN, job he held from April 2015. And before that, he's done a number of roles in the Foreign Office, uh, but also was in number 10 as the Foreign Policy Private Secretary Supremo um, in the early 2000s. He, the one condition Matthew's office set on him coming here was that he was not asked to serve on a manal. So I'm very delighted <laughs> that we have uh, to comment on what Matthew has to say and to uh, widen the range of discussion to have two very excellent uh, contributors. Michaela Garvis is the uh, leading specialist in EU development cooperation. She's a visiting fellow at the Centre for Global Development Europe, but also very relevantly, she is special advisor to the House of Commons International Development Committee, uh, and she's done a lot of writing about uh, aid in Europe. So welcome, Michaela. And on my left, uh, Kirsty McNeil, who is Save the Children's Executive Director of Policy Advocacy and Campaigns, uh, who's worked as a consultant on a wide range of campaigning and social justice organisations, ActionAid, Amnesty, UNICEF, and was also in number 10, uh, I think probably a bit later than Matthew, because she was there under Gordon Brown. Uh, so that's our panel today. But looking at the audience, I think you know huge amounts more about aid and development after Brexit than I do. So we're going to look to you for a lot of challenge and questioning. Um, and I'm just going to make one comment in advance. We all know that we're all very, 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 very excited about the government's white paper uh, following on from Chequers last week. But we invited he you here to talk about aid and development after Brexit. And so I'm going to ruthlessly ensure that we stay focused on aid and development after Brexit, and then we can discuss what we made of the white paper and mutual recognition. Blah, blah, blah. We can discuss those all outside. So we are discussing aid and development after Brexit. That is why we are here. So please keep your questions and comments on that set of issues. Uh, so without further ado, Matthew, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Jill. Thank you very much to the Institute for Government. Uh, thank you to uh, Michaela and Kirsty. Uh, 
uh, as well. Look forward to hearing what you have to say. And thank you to all of you for coming along and uh, offering, uh, as Jill says, I hope lots of comments, questions and challenges. I thought just to kick things off, I would, I would tackle uh, three issues, the first two briefly. Uh, first of all, where are we now, the UK and the EU on aid and development? Secondly, uh, where are we going in terms of the process of Brexit as it relates to development? Uh, and thirdly, I think, and most interestingly, uh, what will happen in the longer term after the UK has left the EU in terms of international development? What is that wider context that we'll be going into? So on the first issue, where are we now? Well, I think the, the, the correct starting point is to say that the UK is a development superpower, and so is the EU. The UK is one of the relatively small number of countries in the world that, as a developed country, has met and continues to meet and has legislated to meet uh, the target of 0.7% of our gross national income to be spent every year on international development. That is a, it's only 7p in every £10, uh, but it translates as £14 billion, which is a lot of money, of which uh, the Department for International Development spends £10 billion we have a view and an interest in how the other four billion gets spent around Whitehall as well. So that puts the UK absolutely at the top, top of the uh, rung of international development donors. But it's important to acknowledge that the European Union is also a development superpower. Uh, the EU and its member states spend £65 billion of ODA, official development assistance, uh, every year. Uh, and of the UK's uh, 14 billion, one and a half billion is spent through the EU. So the status quo, as we are now, is that the UK and the EU are both development uh, superpowers. So, second point, what will happen uh, between the UK and the EU in order uh, to get to Brexit and beyond in a way that ensures that both the UK and the EU continue to be development superpowers? Well, the Prime Minister has made clear that the UK will honour all of our commitments made during our EU uh, membership. We've committed to pay our share uh, of all EU development programmes approved uh, by uh, December 2020, by the end of the implementation period. Uh, and after that point, uh, we need to set in place the partnership, which we want to be deep, meaningful, substantive in development, as in so many other areas, in order to allow the UK and the EU to continue to operate side by side around the world in the arena of aid uh, and development. Our shared values, our shared interests, our shared objectives are not going to be changing through the uh, period of uh, Brexit, and so it's going to be good for both the UK and the EU for us to continue uh, to be able to work together uh, where we can. So that involves setting up a whole series of mechanisms in a framework that we then are able to draw down on to use as and when we both decide to, both the UK and the EU, at some point after Brexit, uh, to work together. Uh, at the most ambitious end of the spectrum, that will mean having instruments that are co-funded by both the UK and the EU. That will clearly only be possible if both the UK and the EU so decide, case by case, to do that sort of uh, pooled funding. There are lots of other ways of working uh, collaboratively together as well. Uh, and the UK uh, is in the market for as wide a range of ways to do that uh, as possible 
as I say, on the, within a framework uh, that is set up in advance. So that when, for instance, a humanitarian emergency comes along, we don't have to sort of start from scratch to work out how the two of us are going to work together. We know how to do it, and we then just decide to apply that particular framework in that particular instance for that particular shared uh, objective. Two absolutely crucial things need to happen in order for that framework to be set up. Uh, one is that the UK needs to be given sort of appropriate uh, involvement in decision-making on uh, any uh, such pooled arrangements. Uh, and secondly, this is a really important point, any UK-based organisation uh, needs to be able to have fair access to that pot of, uh, of, of funding uh, in order for the UK uh, to want to go along with that arrangement. So we're looking, basically, to make things as easy as possible to collaborate in as wide a range of areas as we can, subject, in each case, to a case-by-case decision by both the UK and the EU to uh, collaborate. That's, that's the aim. Uh, that's what the UK position has been, and we have set out in a significant amount of detail, uh, even before uh, uh, recent events, uh, where, what we mean by that in detail for the European Union. And we look forward as the UK, to hearing the EU's uh, response to those ideas uh, as soon as possible so that we can get on with that bit of the uh, negotiation. So that's the second point. Then the third point, just thinking about the context that we will be playing into after the UK has left the EU, what will the world of international development look like? Well, DFID, my new department, is very good at answering that sort of long-term question. Uh, It's what we do. Uh, And so we've been doing a lot of work on what will the future landscape look like for international development? What will the future of poverty uh, look like uh, through, say, the period of the Sustainable Development Goals up to 2030? The SDGs, by the way, uh, were finally uh, approved and signed uh, in my first year in New York at the UN. I think it stands as one of the greatest uh, contributions that the United Nations has made to the whole sphere of international development, setting a framework for the whole of the international community uh, on such a wide range of issues that will, if we succeed, will eradicate poverty and do a whole load of other things as well. So that's the framework up to 2030. When we look, uh, as DFID, at what changes are likely in that time, the really big thing that you notice is that poverty is changing. The rise of China means that Broadly speaking, by 2030, on current projections, there will not be a huge amount of extreme poverty in Asia anymore. And almost all extreme poverty in the world by 2030 will be in sub-Saharan Africa. The second thing you notice is that there is an ever-increasing correlation between extreme poverty on the one hand and conflict or fragility uh, or instability on the other. So we have already committed to spend at least half of our 0.7% on and in fragile and conflict-affected states and their neighbours. And I suspect that, if anything, that target will go up uh, as time goes on because of that very clear correlation. So anything uh, that we can be doing that helps to prevent future conflicts as well as solving existing conflicts and helping countries get over previous or existing conflicts. That is going to be absolutely central uh, to DFID's core mission of eradicating poverty. And that bit of our work will, I think, increasingly uh, be related to sub-Saharan Africa. At the same time, of course, the rest of the world is changing. And one of the many interesting changes from my perspective is the rise of a large number of other big development actors. 
China, for instance, probably wouldn't think of itself at the moment as a huge development donor, but it is that, and of course, by 2030, will be even more so. And the UK needs to put development, I think, at the heart of our bilateral relationship with China, and indeed with a whole load of other emerging and emerged powers, uh, so that we can think collaboratively and in partnership about how to tackle global issues that have either a a direct or an indirect bearing on poverty. And by an indirect bearing on poverty, I mean things like climate change uh, or forced migration, modern slavery, uh, those sorts of issues, as well as uh, the conflict uh, issues that I've already mentioned. So what does that context mean for DFID? Well, you know that slogan that we have, UK aid, that's the badge of hope when you, when you see it around the world, when people in, in extreme uh, situations see it. I want UK aid to stand for the following acronym. Uh, first of all, I want the UK in UK aid, obviously, to stand for our country. It stands for the UK, and we need to make sure that everything that we do in international development has, at its heart, our national interest. That might sound a fairly straightforward thing to say. I think in the past that's probably quite a controversial thing to say inside DFID. But it is possible, in fact necessary, to be doing at least two things at once with every single bit of development spending. Every single bit of development spending should be both about ending poverty and about promoting the British national interest. There is no tension between those things. Much better to think about it as a Venn diagram with a huge amount of overlap. There is so much in the world that is both valuable for ending poverty and valuable for promoting the British national interest. And we can talk further about how one defines that uh, if, if that would be of interest. Secondly, I want the A in UK aid to stand for ambitious. This is not a time for us just to be sitting back and watching from the sidelines. This is a time for the UK, as we exit the EU, to really understand what we're good at as a country and to do more of it and make more of it. And I don't think it's controversial to say that international development is one of the things that we do really well as a country. And so we should be making more of that as part of our view of ourselves, as part of global Britain and our reach and our influence and our reputation around the world. It's quite interesting coming from New York uh, back here, the difference uh, in how DFID goes down as a reputation. In in New York, the DFID reputation is sky high. Uh, It is a uh, seen quite rightly as an absolutely brilliant organisation. When you come back to the UK, you realise that most people, most British people, do not know that we are a development superpower. Most people do not know what DFID does. They don't know what the aid budget does. Uh, And I think a big part of our role, actually, is to help the British people understand where their seven pence in every ten pounds goes. So that's a little bit about A for ambition. Something transformative, not just just ticking over. The I, I want to stand for inclusive. We cannot do this alone in DFID. We need to be doing it with the rest of the British government in an inclusive and joined up and collaborative way. And we are, with some uh, departments probably easier uh, than with others, but we are uh, doing that. Uh, There's a fantastic trade and development agenda, for instance, which we are co-leading with the Department for International Trade. But by inclusive, I also mean being inclusive with the private sector, When you think about that SDG agenda, the Sustainable Development Goals, even if we spend our 14 billion, whatever it is, every year, even if every other developed country does its 0.7%, that's still only going to add up to 100 or 200 billion dollars. And yet we know that it's going to cost at least a trillion dollars every year to achieve uh, the Sustainable Development Goals. So leveraging in the private sector, incentivizing others to bring their capital to the table to 
end poverty and to do all these other things. That's an ever-increasing part of, of, uh, of what DFID is going to be all about, and that's what I mean by inclusive. I also mean, by the way, being inclusive with uh, others like Save the Children, because we don't do this development and aid ourselves at DFID. We do it through commissioning others and uh, uh, working uh, in very tight partnership with them. And then the D of UK aid, I want to stand for development. I suppose that's very obvious. But there is a big difference between aid and development. Aid is actually a very narrow part of what we do. Aid, in my view, is actually a pretty old-fashioned thing, which basically is dying out as countries become rich enough to deal with their own poverty. And, as I say, in time, most countries are doing that, and there's only a relatively small number of countries that, that, that will continue to need aid in that traditional sense. But development is something which is going to apply literally to every single country in the world, and where a partnership between the UK and that country can be valuable for both of us in a win-win sense. So if you put all that together, you get a UK-focused, ambitious, inclusive development, uh, which is where I would like uh, us to see uh, the UK ending up through and after Brexit. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Matthew. Uh, it's got a lot of questions, but I'm going to uh, hold mine back and go straight to Michaela. Michaela, would you like to, to react to what Matthew just said? Great. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you, Matthew, for, for laying that out. Um, I just want to raise three points, um, picking up on um, some of the aspects that Matthew uh, talked about. My first point is how to avoid Britain's decline as a development superpower. So the, the UK is the world's second largest bilateral donor, uh, but uh, I would contend that money alone can't buy influence. Uh, for the UK, being a development superpower does not automatically bring influence. Um, and that requires engagement, it requires collaboration. Um, as Matthew said, the EU has been a major multiplier for UK development and foreign policy. And the UK has also been a multiplier for EU development and foreign policy. But both the UK and the EU will lose a significant part of that leverage. Influencing the UK will no longer directly impact the EU's position, and the UK will find it harder to defend its partners in their negotiations um, uh, with the EU. Uh, for example, the post-Cotonou arrangements, which will still matter more to developing countries than their bilateral relations with the UK. The EU is effectively defining how it relates to Africa at this moment without the UK. So there is, there is no doubt that the UK has brought um, a real development surplus to the EU, not only through its financial contribution, but also the technical expertise and the experience that it has shared with the EU institutions. And conversely, the EU has offered the UK the reach of its extensive presence, the access to its financial instruments, and the opportunity to shape its policy, its programs, and its general di direction along with the other 27 member states. And there is a strong alignment between the UK and the EU in terms of their interests, their values, and their priorities on development. So continued collaboration um, and engagement does make sense. The UK has said it will remain a committed partner to the EU and has called for a deep and special relationship that goes beyond existing third country arrangements. Uh, however, it's not cut and dry what this relationship is going to look like. 
and we've heard that the UK will um, coordinate some of its development aid uh, with the EU budget, but it won't commit to doing so um, until the exact Brexit deal is settled. Um, and that is after the EU has finalised its post-2020 uh, budget. And the proposals on the future um, EU budget post-2020 that the Commission has, has put forward um, in relation to EU external action um, actually mention no specific collaboration mechanisms with the UK. So in the immediate term, we know that there will be no major financial changes. The UK will continue to devote as much through the EU development budget uh, as before. Um, but these are rolling commitments. And uh, we also know that the UK will still be contributing to the EU budget post-2020. <coughs> but this is without a seat at the table. In the longer term, the EU needs to find a way of contributing to and benefiting, sorry, the UK needs to find a way of contributing to and benefiting from the combined efforts of the EU. These are joint efforts, joint mobilization of financial resources, and political efforts um, to enhance impact. My second point um, is that the, the playing field will no longer be level. Um, it was Leo Varadkar uh, in the FT who said any relationship that exists in the future between the EU and the UK isn't going to be one of absolute equals. So as I've mentioned, the UK said, has said it's open to participation in EU external spending programs and instruments, uh, directing development expertise and spend to support uh, peace and security, humanitarian relief and migration. And it's clear what the UK wants, um, to convert as many of the EU instruments into open instruments, uh, whereby any donor with relevant interest, um, experience, can pay for a seat at the table. These are open partnerships, open instruments, open to non-member states. But the EU has also made it clear. The UK will have access as a third country, okay, and a third country like Norway. So being a third country means you don't have the same privileges as EU members. Um, third countries con contribute to and have some management influence uh, over various uh, EU development trust funds. Um, but non and non-EU -donor, non donors may sit on the strategic boards and operational committees uh, of the funds. But it is the commission, however, that has a veto on the decisions of the strategic boards. Um, the EU also allows third countries to contribute to joint programming of aid at the country level. And so far, Switzerland is the most active development partner taking part in joint programming in more than 20 countries. And third countries can also contribute to the EU's new external action guarantee. So the point is that the UK will need to accept that the European Commission will have a decisive voice over EU development spending. And creating a privileged partnership position for the UK only within EU development cooperation will be difficult for the EU, as other third countries will demand equal treatment. Um, so ultimately, there will need to be a qualitative difference between those who are members and those who are not.
And this leads me to my final point, which is about rebuilding trust um, and investing in the influence and in the partnership. So despite the, the, the common interests and the common values, in practice, EU and UK, the, the EU and the UK will not find it easy to maintain the current level of cooperation after Brexit. As I said, the EU is a rules-based institution, and the rules are designed with the interests of its members in mind, and not those of third countries. But I think DFID um, needs to be realistic. It's not going to work if the UK goes in demanding automatic right to have a seat at the, at the governance table. Trust is the key factor, and at the moment, trust on both sides is low. Um, DFID in the UK more broadly needs, need to change the negotiating stance from the EU needs us to we also need you and let's try to make this work. Any formal framework um, with mechanisms actually will need to be backed up by extensive informal contacts with the EU and the member states. So the UK is really going to have to step up its engagement and influence of both the EU institutions and the individual member states. And this is going to require DFID to have a mandate to invest its resources, its time, and its thinking into influencing EU policy um, on development. It's going to require proper staffing in Brussels and in London, and British ministers are going to have to accept that they will need to spend more time talking to their European counterparts. And finally, a combination of targeted secondments of staff to the European Commission um, and the European External Action Service and a large development budget with the extensive informal contacts and a formal partnership um, might just enable DFID to influence EU policy in the areas that actually matter to it. Thank okay, you. thank you, Michaela. I'm going to give Matthew a chance to respond, but first let's hear from Kirsty on whether she sees this as opportunities, threats, challenges, etc. So, Kirsty McNeil. Still. So, I was absolutely delighted to hear Matthew start with ambition because that's where I'd like to focus today. Because, of course, we are entering a period where we'll be post Brexit, but we are already in a period where we are post imperial and post-industrial. So as a country, there are some really significant changes that have happened to our policy framework over the last 50 years, and they're about to be turbocharged by Brexit. And in the face of challenges that big, with implications for every single bit of government, I think we need to hold our nerve. And I think there's three places where we are at risk of losing our nerve and a crisis of confidence with quite big implications for development. So the first is I think we're at risk of losing our nerve as a country so Matthew's told us about how ambitious he and his department are for development, and I'm delighted to hear it, because there's plenty of reason to believe it's justified. So if you look at our history, when we have been ambitious for what we can achieve in development, this country was at the forefront of the MDGs, it was at the forefront of the cross-EU consensus on 0.7 before Glen Eagles, it was at the forefront of the debt deal that was finalised at Glen Eagles, it was at the forefront through Prime Minister Cameron uh, co-chairing the high-level panel of agreeing the SDGs, it was at the forefront of the response to Ebola and on and on and on so when the UK chooses to project with complete confidence 
our soft power combined with our hard power, we can really move mountains. Now, a lot of that soft power has historically been rooted in our membership of the European Union. There's no point denying that. However, it's not been exclusively about that because it's also been rooted in our Rolls-Royce civil service. It's been rooted in our suite uh, of power seats elsewhere, so in NATO, in the UN Security Council, in the IMF, in the World Bank. It's been rooted in our cultural institutions like the BBC and the Premier League. It's been rooted in the thinking that's done in institutions like CGD or um, ODI or UK higher education and it's rooted in the public consent that comes from development and it's partly navigated by organisations like my own coming up to being 100 years old. So we do have an ecosystem that will stay regardless of our status of European Union membership and that should give us confidence to partner with the European Union when that continues to be our interest but also to believe there's much we can do bilaterally and we've seen some of this confidence already from the Secretary of State with what she's doing with the Disability Summit but I'd like to posit two other areas where if we held our nerve we could really make tremendous differences for the poorest of the world. So the first is on pneumonia, little talked about but remains the biggest killer of children, bigger than diarrhoea, malaria and measles combined it's killing two children every minute and Britain could do much of what is necessary to defeat it as the biggest killer of children so get action on the oxygen and the antibiotics getting to the places that they are needed interventions to build up healthcare systems to mirror our own NHS there is a huge unmet child survival need waiting for a champion and Britain because of the pharmaceuticals that are based here the British Oxygen Company being based here our uh, powerful role that we've played in Gavi and the Global Fund and so on is well placed to do a lot of health system infrastructure work globally the second is in protecting children in conflict so those of you who've been following the Syrian civil war will know that two-thirds of children, two-thirds of Syrian children have been injured themselves or seen a family member killed or been in a building when it was bombed. So you have an entire generation of children suffering what psychologists call toxic stress. So it's a form of PTSD that persists unless really significant and protracted mental health interventions are made. We have a global mental health crisis amongst adults, but particularly amongst traumatised children. Again, waiting a champion and exactly the sort of thing where the British government is well placed to lead, not just through DFID and with aid, but through our armed forces and the other things that make us a military superpower as well as a development one. So there are areas where, if as a country we held our nerve, we could make a big difference. The second is, I think we're at risk, it hasn't happened yet, but we're at risk of a crisis of confidence in Matthew's own department because it remains the greatest and most influential development agency in the world. It knows better than anybody on earth how to spend aid and yet we have seen since 2014 a doubling of the amount of ODA spent outside DFID in other government departments. Now, that's not intrinsically problematic, but we know it's not as transparent as that spent by DFID, and therefore we can posit a guess that it's not as effective either. So I would love to see DFID leading a cross-government drive to drive up the quality and transparency of aid all across the other government departments, not just because it's the best, <coughs> DFID's the best at spending aid inside the UK government, it's actually the best at spending aid anywhere on earth. And the third area where I think we shouldn't lose our nerve is we as a rights community. And there's a rights community inside NGOs, but also in foundations, universities, and inside the department itself. And what I mean by that is there are plenty of things that constitute development. However, there are a relatively narrow number of things for which aid is the best instrument inside development. 
a relatively narrow thing, narrow number of things, but utterly transformative things for the people for whom it works. Most of us came into development because we have a simple foundational values-based belief that people shouldn't die because they're too poor to live. That's why most of us come to work. And British aid, but aid in general as an instrument, is particularly good at doing that which no one else would do. As a form of financing, it's primarily there to do things that the private sector can't or won't and the other forms of finance can't or won't. So I would love to see an increased confidence from those of us who come from a rights-based development background of saying social sector spending, so spending on health and education, spending on nutrition, that saves and transforms lives and relieves suffering is amongst the other things that development is there to do, the main thing that aid is there to do. And that may feel quite a narrow technical point, but if what we're interested in is value for money for the taxpayer in the service of the national interest, I would love to see the rights-based community saddling up again to say that actually development, of course, is science, of course, is technical, of course, it's about public procurement, of course, it's about a number of things, but primarily it's about our values and who we are as a country and who we are as a country is, as Matthew said, one that should be standing with total ambition behind our goals to save and change lives. Thank you very much, Kirsty. So we've had, uh, had two quite different perspectives, I think, uh, think there. Um, so, Matthew, um, just to pick up some of the questions Michaela was raising, um, you set out what the UK would like in terms of this ambitious relationship. Michaela's been sort of reminding us that this is the UK sort of saying, well, what you have for third countries actually isn't what the UK wants. We want something... Different. I wonder what you're picking up from your EU counterparts, whether there's enthusiasm on their side for doing something that will enable all those great things you laid out that have been achieved by working with the EU in the future. Uh, are they with us or are they sort of uh, you know, sitting there thinking it's the UK basically with more cake and this time it's just sort of a bit of, uh, bit of development cake it's bringing to the table and wants to eat? Well, the first thing to say is that uh, I think that both uh, Michaela and Kirsty said a huge amount, which I agree with. So panels aren't always that interesting if all the panellists agree with each other, so I don't want to be too disappointing. But <laughs> on the, uh, there were a couple of things which I, that I, I wanted to, to pick up. Um, I mean, first of all, I don't think I agree with Michaela that the EU is getting on and working out its own relationship with Africa without the UK present. I mean, the UK continues to be a member of the EU, and we carry on being in all of these bodies until we leave, and we are rest assured, using every drop of uh, relationship building and negotiation management uh, to, 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 to make the most of that and to help shape the whole of the European Union's approach to Africa while we, while we continue to be a member. And, as I said, to put in place a framework which will then allow us, case by case, to join in and join up uh, in a way that, that, that is good for both the UK and the EU in relation to Africa and, and everywhere else. Um, in, so, you know, I've, I've, I'm very confident that, uh, that, the, uh, that the EU will want um, to reach a good agreement with the UK as it relates to international development. I think that this is something that the UK uh, clearly uh, brings to the table. I think we've been consistent through the negotiation on this, through various uh, non-papers and, and so on, various statements by, by the UK about what we are looking for. <laughs> Uh, and actually, I think that there is obviously there are mixed views. You've got 27 member states and all the institutions. There are going to be different views within that about how much just to, to, to give the UK what we want and how much to uh, negotiate very toughly. My my hope is that in this area uh, they will see that there is significant benefit for them uh, in making sure that the 
instruments, the frameworks and the mechanisms are right uh, for the UK as well to incentivize us uh, to want to join in with them. So I think that this, is, this isn't a big part of the negotiation. You know, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that you don't hear very much about international development whenever you do hear about Brexit. Uh, it's extremely important for DFID and for development, but it's not that big a part of the negotiation. So when Sam Donald came here, he said that basically foreign policy would get quite a lot harder for the UK because we'd lose the sort of EU multiplier, I think, that Michaela was doing, uh, you know, and we would have to be more selective. We've had to prioritise more, and we would actually need to sort of staff up in Brussels uh, and in other European cities to actually sort of you know, rebuild the influence that would be lost by not sitting at the, at the table. I mean, do you, do you see the task getting harder for DFID post-Brexit? Or do you think that actually there's some upside? There used to be a thing where, when I was in government where DFID really always preferred its own programmes to doing things through multilateral frameworks. Always thought its aid was a bit better but was forced to put money through these multilateral things for wider sort of foreign policy goals or whatever. Do you, do you see upside here? There's a huge upside. Uh, there's a huge upside of uh, taking back control in this area and of choosing ourselves how and where uh, to intervene. And that, that applies on international development, as I'm sure it does apply on in, in, uh, in, in other departments' business. If I just go back to my previous role, I was the British ambassador to the UN, as, as Jill said, and a big part of being British at the UN is sitting on the Security Council. No part of the UK's influence on the Security Council has depended on our uh, membership of the European Union. We've been a permanent member of the Security Council since before the European Union existed. Uh, we've been a permanent member of the Security Council through the duration of our time in the EU and its predecessors. And we will continue to be uh, a highly effective and highly influential permanent member of the Security Council after we leave the European Union. So I don't see, and I think that if, you, if we apply the same approach to other parts of the international arena under global Britain, as we have always applied to the Security Council, we'll be in a very strong position as a, as a country. And that is why uh, I made the case, and will carry on making the case, for ambition and confidence. So just to pick up one of, Michaela, uh, one of um, Kirstie's points, Kirstie's obviously got a very positive vision around a very confident government with sort of time and bandwidth and effort to sort of lead on a number of fronts. We know in the rest of Whitehall that Brexit pressures are sort of crowding out bits of other agenda as people are sort of, you know, uh, engaged in dealing with the fallout of leaving that, getting legislation through, uh, making decisions. Is DFID relatively immune to those pressures? Do you still feel you've got a department that's actually got the sort of bandwidth to make waves on the development front or are you losing people into DEXEU and different jobs and things like that? No, I'm delighted to say that we've got a, we, we do not have a retention problem. Uh, we don't have a recruitment problem. Uh, we have very large numbers of people wanting to come and work for DFID, and I'm absolutely delighted that that's the case. And, and long may that continue, and I will do everything that I can uh, to carry on making it an attractive uh, place uh, for civil servants to work, uh, for our local staff around the world to want to work, uh, and for other people not working inside DFID, but working alongside DFID with us in delivering this life life-saving and life-changing aid uh, that Kirsty was talking about around the world. So I don't see a crisis of confidence at all. Quite the opposite. I see a department uh, that's got mojo uh, and that's got a sense of direction and that has got uh, th the right amount of money in order to deliver the mission. 
And that's a very exciting place to work. And so, so a final comment to the writer. The other thing that Simon McDonald said quite interestingly when he was here, he was asked about upping the UK's sort of effort internationally. And he sort of slightly made big eyes at the aid budget in Africa and said, well, if a bit of that came to the Foreign Office, then obviously we could up our diplomatic effort, effort a bit more. I mean, are you worried that as you know, resources maybe tighten, we head into a difficult spending round, that that, uh, that four billion non-diffid odour might creep up as other people sort of see it as a way of squaring some of the sums? Well, as Kirsty said, the proportion of the aid budget that other departments spend has gone up a lot in, mm. in, in recent years. Uh, and that's a good thing from a DFID point of view. There are things that other departments can do that DFID is not best placed to do. However, there are also things that DFID is best placed to do. And generally speaking, if you look at the objective evidence, this is not me talking, but this is the International Development Committee or the Independent Commission on Aid Impact or, or various others, DFID has got an incredibly strong track record at delivering ODA in ways that are value for money, that are transparent, and that are coherent. Uh, and other departments have a mixed record on that. The ones, interestingly, that come to DFID and ask for advice on how to do it, that ask for our expertise, sometimes that ask for our staff, often that ask for use of our own systems, whether it's monitoring and evaluating, or, manage, or metrics, or quality assurance, audit, all those functions. The, the, the ones who ask for that, they get it, and they deliver OJA effectively. And the ones that seek to do it themselves, on the whole, do not deliver it as effectively. I think this is a massive question for the next spending round, and, uh, but I'm confident that, that DFID has an offer uh, that the Treasury uh, and others uh, will find compelling. Okay, well, hopefully people from the Treasury and elsewhere in government are all watching and taking that lesson. We're going to move to questions now. We've got some roving mics. We'll take them in batch of three because there are loads of questions uh, coming through. So, Maddie, do you want to go there and then we can come forward? Uh, so we'll take them in batches. Not everybody. If anyone's next door and wants to answer a question, there are a couple of seats in here, but also just put your head around the door and then we can, uh, we can make sure your question gets asked. Yes. Can you tell us who Hi, you are? Uh, Matt Dathan from The Sun. Um, just to pick up on something you said uh, earlier, Matthew, um, how is DFID helping people to better understand how their money is spent? And what do you say to critics who say that the foreign aid budget maybe should contribute or be diverted a little bit to the NHS extra spending before Brits get taxed more? Okay. I'm not sure that changes because of Brexit, but anyway. But Hi there, Gideon Rabinowitz from Oxfam. Great to hear that the government has ambitions to remain uh, ambitious around development more broadly, because I think all of us working in the development sector know that it's not aid that's going to deliver development. It's the whole package of policies that we can bring to bear on that challenge. Um, we know that DIF is working increasingly with other government departments in delivering aid, but is, are you getting a sense that DIF is also getting traction in the other policy agendas across government that we need to get right um, that those relationships and those partnerships on delivering aid are helping leverage influence around the other policies that we need to get right? And also, what mechanisms and approaches to doing that better in the future do you think will help sort of get that whole package um, where it needs to be? Thank you. Great, thank you. And I think it's just immediately in front of you. We'll uh, Christopher Howarth, working for the Project for Modern Democracy, which is a think tank that's doing research on the history of DFID and the effectiveness of development aid. I was just interested in your thoughts on when you said about the, there being no tension between the Britain's national interest and the effectiveness of aid. 
Um, it seems that to me that from a historical perspective, uh, it is very much in Britain's interests that it gives aid and development, but those times in Britain's history when it has made uh, the national interest an aspect of the aid projects that it's choosing to do, then it's been less effective. So you have examples like the Purgao Dam um, in the 90s and the um, aid, aid for Trade Partnership and the Groundnut Scheme in the 50s. Um, so I was interested in what you mean by that, whether it's the fact that we're giving aid generally or whether aid projects should consider the national interest as well. The aid trade provision lasted long beyond the 50s. I remember it was one of the things I worked on when I was uh, first, in the, first in the Treasury. Matthew, would you like to pick up, uh, pick up those questions? I mean, how are you going to sell the Absolutely. aid budget? Uh, Great questions. Um, so first of all, Matt, um, this, is a, this, is a, this is a big part of, of the job. I mean, and you and your colleagues uh, in the media have a, have a crucial role to play as well. I think one thing uh, that you could do is put it in context. Seven pence in every ten pounds is not not a large proportion of our income as a country, uh, and we have massive impact around the world. And between us, we and other donors have raised literally a billion people out of poverty in recent years. What matters for individual British taxpayers, I think, is something that really connects to them. And what we have seen is that actually, the, for the people who are... There are some people who will never agree that, that aid should be spent at all, because everything should be spent in my constituency or my school or whatever. There are those people, and I don't think there's anything that I can say to them. What I can say, though, to the people who are sceptical but persuadable, which is a significant chunk of this country's population, is that what you are worried about is that aid does not work. You are worried that aid is corrupt, you are, that, it, that it ends up in, in you know, the wrong places, and you are worried that the scale of the problems that aid is trying to tackle are just too big. So however generous we are with a country, we're never going to be more than a drop in the ocean. And for, for those people, I say, basically, you're right. You know, there, there, are, there are things that we need to do to tackle both of those concerns. We need to shine a light of transparency to make sure that we're cutting down on corruption in the aid sector. And we need to make sure that we are defining successes so that people can see that what they give so generously does have an impact. In short, we need to demonstrate that aid works. And... Hence our hashtag AidWorks. We're doing a uh, little campaign, doing a pilot in the West Midlands actually to see if you can connect people in that part of the country with voices that, that, will, that will be relevant to them. So, you know, a nurse from Birmingham who's been part of an emergency medical team that's gone out to help tackle the latest outbreak of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo. When she came back and she was able to talk to people in her uh, part of the country, that was, you know, that was the sort of thing that, that we can do and, and we're interested in doing doing more of that. Uh, and your other question was about uh, uh, the National Health Service. And of course, actually, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not a choice. There is stuff that we can be doing with the aid budget that has a direct impact on health in this country. I've already mentioned Ebola. You know, if we had failed uh, to f- collectively to find the vaccine, which is, was used in this, this time, if we had failed to respond so well either this time or last time to Ebola, there would have been a massive public health issue for the UK. So being upstream, out there, in the most dangerous parts of the world, tackling these issues as they arise, that is of massive benefit to health in the UK. There are other things that, we, that I could use to answer that question as well in terms of like research that helps, um, that, that helps the whole world, including, including the UK. Should I okay. answer some Let's of the other yeah, questions? Yeah, or, or do you want yeah. other people to answer no, the other questions? No, far away with the other questions, then I'll bring in Michaela and Kirsty for comments. Yeah. So Gideon's question was about DFID's traction in other, if you like, in other parts of the, uh, of, the, of, of the government. And I think this is a really important point as well. So 
We have this thing now called the fusion doctrine, uh, which broadly speaking means that rather than just one department pulling our own lever to meet our own objective, that, that we should be prepared to pull a development lever in order to meet a trade objective or a home office objective or an MOD objective or whatever. And we do. That's what Penny Mordaunt means when she talks about these win-wins uh, that, that we're doing. But equally, it needs to be a two-way street, right? So we need to make sure that when there's a future uh, trade agreement that we are maximising the development benefit of that in order for the two-way street between trade and development to flow in that direction as well, and similarly uh, with, with other departments. And I think that one of the reasons that I talk about DFID being inclusive with how we do our work with the rest of Whitehall is to, is to m- get much better as a department at doing that sort of thing, at that joining up, <laughs> collaboration, finding win-wins that work uh, for, 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 for both departments and having that two-way, two-way flow. And, and I, there, there, are, there's, there's, there are lots of things which we could do better in terms of mechanisms. And again, it might be a question for the spending round about how we get greater coherence about that 100% of British government aid uh, rather than having it too fragmented across different departments. Um, and then finally, uh, another interesting question for Christopher about aid and the national interest. I mean, I actually mean it both ways. So personally, I do believe that, that being a very big development player is in our national interest itself. But I also mean that we need to make sure that every single bit of aid spending is itself connected to the national interest and that we can frame what we are doing with every single programme in some combination of the UK's security, the UK's prosperity or the UK's influence. Those are the three big dimensions of national interest that, that, that we use in the National Security Council. And it is absolutely possible uh, to do that. And if it wasn't, then we should stop, it, stop, the, stop the funding. And, and I... But, Taking prosperity as an example, that does not mean doing the Pergo Dam. Again, the problem with the Pergo Dam was it was tide aid. That is not allowed in this country anymore. We do not do tide aid. Tide aid is bad for development. Uh, and, but, there are, but that doesn't mean that we can't do things in development with the aid budget that also have a benefit for British companies. That's not tide aid. That's, you know, that's helping Kenya eradicate poverty by creating a, a, you know, jobs and growth in Kenya which at the same time is creating a future market for British companies. And That's Matthew, it. are you clear that you've won the argument against Tide that aid should stay yeah. untied? There's Absolutely. no pressure from DIT or anyone to say just a bit of aid would help, uh, help here. Let's just throw it into the mix. Yeah, that we, don't, we don't do Tide aid as, as a country. <laughs> I'm glad that we don't. And, uh, and, it's, and it's very clear British government policy not to do Tide aid. And that's a good thing. So, Michaela, Kirsty, anything you want to pick up from that set of questions about uh, you know, national interest, uh, aid effectiveness, or indeed, you know, actually what looks good in terms of cross-departmental collaboration? Well, if I could actually just pick up on this question about how we sell it to the yeah. public. Because we, because um, I know from my own time in yeah. government, it's relatively rare that the thing that is evidence-based, absolutely the right and best thing to do, and the most popular thing to do, don't always coincide. Uh, but we are very lucky in the case of aid that it does actually. So we know from the evidence that differed social sector spending, so just to put it in ordinary language, putting kids in school, keeping them safe from disease and getting them fed, uh, DFID is really, really good at that, and all the evidence and evaluation tells us that they're really, really excellent at that. And that's actually the bit of aid that's most popular with the public. They think it should be used to save lives on understandable, relatable things that they do with their own kids here at home. The public is less convinced, actually, at some of the other um, areas that DFID is uh, working on a bit more recently. 
And I have no ideological um, problem with work on economic development or in the national interest or in other areas happening at all. But I think we need to get a stronger evidence base about can we prove that that money is working as hard as we know it already does in the social sectors because the public think there's a bit of a plausibility gap. It's not that they think, um, for example, economic growth shouldn't happen. They just absolutely intuitively believe it's businesses that create jobs and drive economic growth. They absolutely want to see less migration. Now, whether I think that's right or wrong, we know the public wants to see less migration. They just don't believe that aid's got anything to do with it. They they think it's implausible, the idea that spending aid makes people move around less because they know that people move around less because they move because they're aspirational and they want a different life for themselves and their families. They're not necessarily hostile to that, even though they want uh, immigration restricted. They're not hostile to the aspirations of people from poor countries moving here, but they don't think aid is the right instrument. And I think from an evidence-based point of view, Save the Children would conclude that it's probably not too. And we can look up. On the point, uh, the point about sort of you know getting traction with other policy areas. What would you, as CGD, be looking for as sort of evidence that Diffid really was getting traction in terms of driving the cross-government agenda? Well, um, as some of you may know, CGD has um, uh, an index which uh, we put out every year. It's the Commitment to Development Index, where we evaluate um, countries. Uh, policies to the extent that they are actually contributing in a beneficial way to development. Um, And we're coming out with the latest results um, in about a month or so. Um, So we'll see about that. But I I just wanted to pick up this point about the national interest. I mean, I I agree with Matthew. I don't think there is... um, There doesn't need to be a tension between aid and the national interest. I mean... We know that aid for poverty reduction, for global prosperity, for peace and security is actually in our collective interest, uh, uh, rather than pure national. But just to to, um, pick up something that the Secretary of State wrote um, in The Telegraph uh, last year. She talked about uh, a bold new Brexit-ready proposition to boost trade um, uh, and investment with uh, developing countries. But I think we need to be a little bit careful about where this sort of rhetoric um, actually leads us um, in practice. I mean, it, it, it does actually imply this sort of new um, sort of proposition to boost trade and investment. It implies that uh, DFID will focus more on increased trade and investment, and actually where the opportunities exist for that increased trade and investment is mostly in the more well-off countries, um, in middle-income countries. So um, I, I would say we need to be a little bit careful with um, how we translate the rhetoric. So Matthew, should we be worried about, I'm going to go to more questions, should we be worried about that, or to clarify your Secretary of State and reconcile her with what you just said? No, no, no reconciliation needed. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> um, the core mission of DFID will, continue, will always be ending extreme poverty and making sure that the whole world meets the sustainable development goals. Within that, there, and, and that will have a focus on the, the, the poorest countries that need the most mm-hmm. assistance. But within that, there are choices to be had about the scale of ambition that we want as a country and our presence, uh, not just in the poorest countries in the world, but in countries as they emerge out of poverty and become lower middle income and middle income countries. And my view and uh, Penny Morgan's view is that we in DFID should have a bigger and better offer to those countries as part of a joined up British government effort. 
Okay, we've got millions of questions coming in now, so we'll go here, and then if Adela can just go in front of her, we'll take, take another batch of questions and try and get everybody in. So short questions, and we'll have to have short answers, and I won't say anything. Yes. Fabulous panel, thank you. Alexia Latortu with the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, a development bank proudly based in the UK. Agree, Matthew, the UK is a development superpower. Agree, Michaela, it needs to maintain that status. And I want to talk about your leadership in, the, in private sector development, an area that, Christy, you just talked about, sometimes harder to sell to the public. You were an early country to say it's critical to focus on private sector development. Don't hear as much from you on this topic this day, today. So what is your plan looking forward um, on private sector development? And also, quickly, if you could touch on your relationship with the European Investment Bank and plans in the future. Okay, so we've got lots of banks coming in there. Yes. I'm a very ancient professor from Warwick University Business School, but for the last 10 years been involved in a program of girls' education in South Sudan. I wonder if we could just explore, Matthew, in a, I'm in a very persuasive and clear strategy from you. Uh, what do you think the limits of ambition are? I want, it's arguable that sub-Saharan Africa to achieve the SDGs by 2030 needs something like the Marshall Plan, a major program of investment uh, in infrastructure, skills, uh, to create the conditions for a market to flourish, uh, to allow people to become self-reliant and perhaps to stem the flow of migration. But ideologically, that perhaps fits more comfortably in the European discourse than current British discourse, because people inevitably think of Marshall Plans as Keynesian or some state-led. So we wondered if we could explore that. And perhaps I could just add, I think this is already happening in countries like South Sudan, not at the national level, but at the intermediate level, at the state level, and you'd immediately find partners you could work with for wanting to do that. Okay, and final question, then we'll have another round. So, yes. Uh, John Keeler from Ordnance Survey. Um, two questions. One very quickly on the Tide aid. Um, do we have a policy to try and untie other nations' aid uh, that enables British companies perhaps to uh, bid on projects that they can't at the moment? And the second point is in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we used to map vast parts of the world for those nations' benefit. Uh, as a form of aid. Uh, we don't anymore, and yet those countries are often still using 60s, 70s, 80s mapping for achieving sustainable development goals. Clearly nonsensical. Is it not time in the digital era that perhaps with one of our new partners, uh, we look again at whether helping create digital mapping for countries should be something we engage in? That's a bit of a bid from the Ordnance Survey there, she said. She said... It's a bit transparent, but we like transparency here. Anyway, I think it's really interesting a set of questions here about private sector versus state-led aid. So where, where are we? Are we going a bit quiet on private sector? Uh, are we going to lose the possibility of being players in a Marshall Plan for Africa, Matthew? Yeah, uh, so absolutely we're not going quiet on the private sector. And um, uh, we, look, we, cannot, we cannot do this as, as uh, state-only, public sector-only. This is a, you know, ending poverty is a classic... Uh, problem that requires all different sectors coming together uh, and uh, disproportionately we need to incentivise private sector invest, investment and involvement in the SDGs and in development more broadly and, and that is what we are doing and London, partly because of the EBRD, partly because the city is a really great place uh, to, be, to be doing that. Um, I mean, what are the limits of our ambition? Well, I think 
you know, e even the most ambitious of us in DFID wouldn't expect the 0.7% commitment to go up uh, from 0.7%. So there's a, there's a limit to the amount of state money going in, if you like. But in a way, there's no limit to how effective we can be at spending it. And so if we can put ourselves at the sort of heart of a, of a web of partnerships, I think that we can leverage others to do something which, I don't know whether you'd call it a Marshall Plan or not, but it would be transformative to the, that sort of scale uh, for the continent of, of, of Africa. And then I, I, I must admit that before today I hadn't thought of mapping as a key part of the development <laughs> agenda, but I, I realise the narrowness of my view now. And, and in particular, the, your really great question allows me to make a point which should have been much earlier, which is about the power of tech. Uh, and you, so what you're talking about, digital mapping, is a, sounds like a brilliant example of putting the power of, of digital or tech revolution more generally to the, you know, honing it and pointing it in the direction of eradicating poverty, uh, which is what we're trying to do. And there's some great examples of that, actually many of which have been seed-funded by DFID. So this whole mobile, mobile technology in Kenya, mobile energy now, soda fridges, um, you name it. There's a whole load of really great British-funded innovation going on that is allowing generations, uh, is allowing some countries to skip generations uh, and really uh, drive themselves out of poverty. So, Kirsty McKenna, any of those points you want to pick up, whether on mapping and tech or on public-private? On the EIB yeah. and the UK's relationship with the EIB, um, again, we haven't really, um, there isn't really that much on the table, but um, there was an interesting article in the FT uh, a couple of days ago um, where President Hoyer, the president of the EIB, um, has actually opened the door and said um, he, uh, he would strongly welcome the UK continuing to be uh, a member of the EIB and potentially even looking at changing the, the, the founding treaty uh, of the EIB to allow that to happen. Um, so uh, I, I would be interesting to hear what happens um, with that in the UK's position. Okay, let's go for some more questions. We've got some at the front here. So here, and Adela, if you can come here. Hi, um, thanks very much for a really interesting panel. I'm Leah Marchak from the Government of Canada. And I wanted to ask you how you see Brexit representing an opportunity for engagement with donors beyond the EU and how you can maybe be more strategic in your collaboration with countries like mine. Okay, that's a nice offer on the table then there. Jeff House of Lords, Chair of the All Party Group on the SDGs. Um, I was very pleased to hear Ma Matthew mention the SDGs uh, up front in his, his contribution. Uh, and I just wonder whether there is an opportunity in these negotiations to dovetail more coherently the UK's work, which I think is improving under the new Secretary of State on the SDGs, and the EU's work, which I think has suffered from a lack of coherence across the member states, uh, and where the SDGs really are the backdrop and the framework to this whole ambitious uh, partnership. And within that, on Goal 16, can we ensure that the, the negotiations on the new security partnership take into account conflict prevention and work on institution building in Goal 16 and are not just focused on hard power and intelligence. Okay, that's an interesting point. Yes. And uh, Ken Bluestone from Age International. You said that the, um, this is not a big part of the negotiations and obviously that's potentially an opportunity because this could just fly underneath the radar, but equally it could be something that means that the types of things that you were talking about you like to achieve could be um, sacrificed in the interests of bigger political interests. Um, and I realize that it's impossible to, to, to really divulge exactly what's happening, but what I haven't got a sense of yet is 
how much of the, the thinking that you're discussing and the, the, the ambitions that you've talked about are um, you're hearing back from European partners and how much they are on board with this agenda? Okay, so let's have some very quick fire answers from Matthew. Canada, negotiations, and SDGs. So Canada, I think, is a great example of a, of a, of a fellow donor that, where we already have a really great strategic relationship. We saw that through the G7 uh, through this year. Uh, but yeah, let's make it even more strategic if we can find ways out. But I mean, we are working alongside each other on uh, women and girls, for instance, but lots of other examples as well. Um, on, uh, on Lord McConnell's question about um, the SDGs, absolutely. Uh, the UK has a huge opportunity, but also a responsibility in a year's time when we put forward our voluntary national um, assessment of how we are getting on domestically uh, in implementing the Sustainable Development Goals. And we'd love to work with uh, you and your uh, uh, group uh, in, uh, in working that up over the, over the next year. I don't know if I'm allowed to have a favourite SDG, but if I am, I think Goal 16 would probably be it. Because uh, it brings together good Which governance. Is? It's the one that, that basically says that a peaceful, well-run place is likely to be less poor uh, than, than others. So it's a link between uh, lack of conflict, strength of institutions, good governance, justice, rule of law, civil society, that sort of thing. Uh, and all of that is relevant to a country's development. Um, and, and finally, on, on, on the appetite on the other side, is this going to get sort of missed out? Or, so and I think there's a really interesting point as well about which links in, about sort of, you know, we talk about security partnership, a sort of bit about the hardware, but, you know, is it actually going to be a sort of, you know, soft power relationship as well? Which I think we So... Um, uh, the, the people who need to be focusing on this clearly are focusing on it. Um, I was just saying it's not, it's, you know, it's not a big part of the of the of the national debate is it about about Brexit, and it, and doesn't need to be. Um, within the negotiation, it is part of the external and the sort of secu- under security partnership mm. heading, which is diplomacy, defence, and development. Uh, good progress is being made in that area. I. As I said earlier, I look forward to hearing a bit more actually from the EU side about what they think of our proposals. I think that you know the ball is very much in their court on this particular issue. Uh, but also, as I said before, there is a, there are a range of views. We're talking to a lot of the member states who are who are, who are very significantly aligned with us anyway. Uh, but as one of the as one of uh, my my colleagues said, the Commission hold a lot of the cards here. Matthew, just to pick up on the SDG point and the sort of point about the EU's emphasis, do we think that we'll strike quite different tones on some issues from? the EU where we've taken coordinated positions in some sort of international forum before? Do we see a sort of distinctive UK line emerging in any areas where you felt a bit hampered by the need to go along with a coordinated line? Well, I wouldn't expect that overnight as we leave the EU. Uh, as as uh, Michaela has said, we're actually going to be carrying on paying in uh, aid money into the EU budget even after the end of the implementation period. So there's not going to be a huge odour Brexit dividend anytime soon. Uh, and we are going to carry on being you know, aligned in terms of values. So, um, but, but what we do have is the possibility in the future to, to make decisions of, of our own. OK, we're going to have a massive splurge uh, to try and make sure we can get everybody in. So, Adela, there's a couple of people just behind next to you and then behind you. So we'll do that very efficiently. And, Matty, if you bring the mics down here, let's do four... And then uh, do that. And then Kirsty and Michaela, if you had points on the previous sets of questions, uh, whatever, then pick those up in, in these. Yes. My name is, is John Montague. I'm in the House of Lords as an independent peer, questioning Difford at every, every opportunity. <laughs> um, 
I want to bring up migration, which um, Kirsty's already mentioned. I know we've got limited time for that, but it's the biggest subject, in my belief, uh, uh, influencing voters on Brexit. I mean, we haven't really grappled with it. My question is, could you help out the Home Office? The reason I give you is in Albania, where under, under anti-trafficking, anti-slavery legislation, we've been doing a lot in talk about helping Albanians who are being trafficked. There are people in serious need there. Uh, the Home Office doesn't have the money, certainly the Albanians haven't. Could it be part of your Western Balkans overview, which is going on in Whitehall anyway? Okay, thank you, thank you very much. That's a very interesting and different area. Yes? Uh, Andrew Stunnell, House of Lords. Uh, you mentioned China obliquely. They're investing hugely in sub-Saharan Africa. They don't care all that much about rule of law and governance. Uh, can you see ways in which we can uh, get uh, some synergy between our investment in sub-Saharan Africa and the Chinese in the new future? Okay, yes, and then there, and then somebody just behind, yeah. Hi yes. there, Fergus Reid from the uh, Commons Committee. I liked your superpower analogy. I was just wondering if you had a plan B for a, the Cold War scenario of a no deal. Okay. Um, I might just rule that out of court. Anyway, yes. Uh, hi, uh, Philip Bryan, House of Commons Library. Um, you, uh, Matthew, you said something about, also about China, um, about them being a major development donor coming forwards. Um, I was interested, do you think that's going to be much more on an OECD-like um, basis where they're following rules of ODA and transparency and so on, or much more on a, say, Saudi Arabia um, model where they're giving a, lot, giving a lot of aid but very much on their own terms? Okay. If I call it halt there, there's one final question. I'm just going to go there, and then I'm going to ask the panel to do that. Maddie there. Hi, Claire Heffernan, London International Development Centre. Do you think these recent sex scandals that have rocked the UK development community to its core will have any influence on our ability to have soft power to create platforms of actions in the future? So you mean the problems in the aid in Absolutely. NGOs? Yeah. Okay, so Matthew, that's quite a wide range of questions. Why don't you hold back? Because I'm going to ask you to sort of give a great summing up. And I'm going to go first to... Kirsty, Kirsty, thoughts about China as a donor, um, Plan B on Brexit, um, the potential to putting, you know, doing some of the things with the Home Office on stabilising migration. I think migration both Albania. There's also a very interesting question about North Africa as well and things like that stabilising um, migrant flows. So I think the theme that sums a lot of that up is like Matthew, uh, 16 is my favourite also, um, <laughs> and the reason for that is, and coming back to the colleague from Canada's question. I don't have a sort of ideological um, allergy to the idea that national interest foreign policy and uh, development policy should be aligned. What I am anxious about is that one should be subsumed almost entirely into the other, which is what we've seen happen in places that have abolished their independent Department for International Development and said, oh, actually, it's because we're trying to align and have cross-government coherence. It hasn't actually meant that. It's meant a massive slash in the amount of money that's spent on the world's poorest and... Uh, a subservience at almost of the development agenda to the foreign policy one. But the, the prize is still great. 
So even though it's gone wrong in other countries, does not mean we shouldn't still be aiming for, in the sort of spirit of Goal 16, a cross-government approach to foreign and security policy that delivers for the world's poorest people. And it's interesting when we speak about new development actors like China. Whenever I speak to Southern colleagues, they find our sort of um, deep sort of neurosis about this very strange. And they say, what is this South-South cooperation that you're talking about? We've just got foreign policy. But they don't think I'm about to engage in some South-South mm. development cooperation now. They think my country is going to speak to another mm. country about an area where we have overlapping or antagonistic mm. interests. And they just think it's bilateral foreign policy. And in that spirit, um, whilst I agree with Matthew that 0.7 is probably our high uh, watermark in terms of spending, it's certainly not our high watermark in terms of ambition for what that spending could achieve. And crucially, how forceful we should be about ensuring that there's no other bit of government that undermines its impact and we've seen that in uh, the UK incoherence around government policy around Yemen, and that's replicated in lots of our bilateral partnerships um, and the primacy that the Saudi security relationship has been given over our development objectives. And I'd love to see um, our country have less of a fixation on what is DFID doing or what is AIDS doing even more narrowly than that, and what is HMG doing, and even wider than that, global Britain as an ecosystem what is it doing in the service of development? And that will not always or even primarily be done through DFID, actually. Every single actor that has any influence uh, in the world, and most British actors have outsized influence, as I say, right from Arsenal through to the Treasury, every single actor aligned around common, coherent, goal six aligned policy feels like, to me, the really big prize. So do you think reputationally we've been damaged by some of these scandals? That sort of, you know... Undoubtedly. OK. Undoubtedly. Michaela. Um, OK, so uh, maybe just uh, briefly on China. Actually, it's interesting to see um, this new, newfound rapprochement between China and, um, and Europe uh, at the moment in retaliation against, um, uh, against Trump. And, um, and I, think, I think the UK being there with its uh, European partners um, in, in sort of... Uh, in engaging with China is going to be absolutely crucial. Um, I think uh, I think DFID has some very hard choices to make um, uh, on the horizon, um, and I don't think a no deal Brexit is actually going to have such an impact on them. Um, development cooperation is is it's it's not as complicated as most um, other areas because you know because it's a parallel competence. So DFID can continue to do what it does um, without, uh, without a deal on Brexit. Uh, but I think the choices, nevertheless, are going to be hard. Um, they, the choices are about whether to continue to allocate funds to the EU, uh, even though it won't have a similar status, um, whether to allocate more money to other multilaterals, um, whether it should expand the geographic scope of its ODA, um, whether to increase ODA for uh, business investment or, um, or reallocate funds to new strategic uh, initiatives, whether that's disability, whether it's um, in pneumonia or others. Um, but I would suggest that actually for the UK to retain its status as a superpower, a development superpower, um, I think it should do all of the above. Matthew, final word. Well, I very much agree with that, actually. I think, uh, first of all, it's, it's fantastic to have so many 
people here and, and so many voices from, from Parliament in that last round of questions. Uh, and I do think that, you know, the, the spirit in this room and in this discussion has been a really great example, actually, of global Britain in action. We've just got to get on and do it now. Uh, and by doing it, I mean all of security, prosperity and influence. And thinking about how development can be a big part of all three of those pillars of our, of our national interests and our, our vision ourselves as a, as, a, as a country. And we, we just need to make sure that the development part of our identity is really to the fore uh, and that we make sure that we're flexible enough in how we interpret the rules and how we do the spending so that we can be both ending poverty and pursuing our security. For instance, by working in Albania on, on tackling modern slavery is a great example. Uh, on prosperity, lots of good examples have come up about how we can, how we can do that in ways that are, that are, that are, that are going to promote our own country as well as the developing country. And on our influence, it's in a way, all of this is about uh, what we stand for as a country, our values uh, and our, our reputation, uh, and making sure that we take the op- opportunities ahead uh, in, a, in a self-confident and ambitious way. Okay, I'm going to call it a halt there, uh, because it's got to 1.45. Thank you all very much for coming and listening and participating so actively. Uh, And thank you very much to our very excellent panel. And thank you so much, Matthew, for coming and subjecting yourselves to questioning. So that was extraordinary.